Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Hollywood. It's May 1972. The Rolling Stones tool up and down the Sunset Strip in their big black Mercedes limousine. A not uncommon occurrence. The radio blasts their new song, Tumbling Dice. This is impressive considering the song wasn't technically released yet. But Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had wanted to hear what it sounded like on this, the primary medium for music discovery in the early 70s, FM bandwaves. After months obsessing over every single sound on their new record, Exile on Main Street, they were well aware that most people would first hear the lead single in their cars, tuned to their favorite station. This was, after all, the fruits of their very laborious labors that had begun in France one year earlier. First impressions were important. In the 70s, singles lived or died by the radio. If it sounded good on crappy mono car speakers, it would sound good on anything. Brian Wilson had a similar test when assembling final mixes for his Beach Boys hits in the mid-60s. So did Barry Gordy and the quality control squad at Motown. But those guys just rigged up a car speaker in a conference room and took a listen. The Stones went one step further by actually taking the rough mixes to a local station and persuading the stunned DJ to give it a spin. In truth, very little persuasion was needed. And so, when the Stones wanted to hear their playbacks, the whole city knew it. The band always had a special relationship with Los Angeles. Well, it may be, as Neil Young once sang, an uptight city in the smog, LA has also always been a Stones town. As far back as the band's first tour of America in 1964, the city of Falling Angels has always welcomed the Rolling Stones as one of their own. Hell, they recorded satisfaction here. With the hip underground FM radio stations constantly blasting the Stones, their music has literally become the soundtrack of the city. And so it's most definitely here that the Stones belong. Technically, however, they're still in exile, although the natives speak a rough approximation of the English language. And cocaine, which soon becomes the drug of choice as the excruciating process of mixing the album begins, 
is much easier to procure here in Southern California than it was in the south of France, LA doesn't feel like home. But then, for those who were born and raised in England, how could it? Those words come courtesy of legendary rock journalist Robert Greenfield. The previous June, he'd spent several weeks at Villa Melkut, Keith Richards' rented home in southern France, where the band were living as tax exiles. He chronicled the experience in a cover story for Rolling Stone magazine, which he later expanded into the book Exile on Main Street, A Season in Hell with the Rolling Stones. At the time, the bands were just beginning sessions for their gritty double-disc opus, born of decadence and depravity in Keith's sweltering basement. Now they doubled down on both by decamping to Hollywood, where Greenfield crossed paths with them again shortly before the STP tour was due to kick off. Preparations were well underway for the biggest rock production the world had ever known. But before they could hit the road, they needed to actually finish the album they were supposed to be promoting. This task was complicated by the perfectionist streak and the blizzard of cocaine. Also, Keith's crippling heroin addiction threatened the tour and his life. In addition to Greenfield and his never-before-heard tapes of the Stones in their 70s exile-era glory, will also be joined by his friend and fellow STP tourmate Gary Stromberg, the band's PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. My name's Jordan Runtog, and this is the Stones Touring Party. At the end of 1971, the Stones had traded the faded glamour of the French Riviera for the faded glamour of old Hollywood. They settled in the so-called golden triangle of ultra-rich LA hillside enclaves that included Beverly Hills, Bel Air, and Holmby Hills. Daily life there doesn't hold a candle to the debauched madness they just left behind in the south of France, but you could hardly call it ordinary. Mick, his new wife Bianca, and their baby daughter Jade are ensconced in a 30-room mansion that had formerly belonged to Marion Davies, the silent film star and longtime mistress of newspaper scion, William Randolph Hearst. For listeners seeking a visual, imagine the home in The Godfather where the studio executive wakes up with a horse head in his bed. It's the same place. The vibe is Southern California Gothic, and the atmosphere is decidedly spooky. Paths choked with vines and underbrush lead past an artificial waterfall that's long gone dry. There's barely any sign of human life. The only sound around is the whisper of a sprinkler outside. Needless to say, it made an impression on Robert Greenfield when he came to interview Mick. It's right out of Sunset Boulevard. You know, the pool had the leaves in it and hadn't been cleaned. I mean, we were like in a deserted mansion, right? It was and a deserted mansion. The pool was funky, and it was just him and Bianca, man. And then Keith living in a completely different way with Anita, usually pregnant. He loved it. He was happy. Keith and his partner, Anita Pallenberg, were holed up a short drive away on Stone Canyon Road with their young son, Marlon. Their departure from France had been, to put it mildly, stressful. The French authorities, having noted the disturbing number of known drug dealers who frequented Villa Nelcut, began to suspect Keith of drug trafficking, in addition to a host of other crimes, both real and imagined. In the end, he was more or less forced to flee the country before the law closed in. Hollywood no doubt proved a welcome refuge, but according to Greenfield, the pall that hung over the last days in France followed them to their new home. Now they come to L.A., and I was with them 
in L.A. I mean, this is of interest to me in terms of they're out touring this album. And I'll say it, you'll know it, Ed, a lot of darkness in that album, man. You know, darkness on the edge of town. There's a lot of darkness in that album. And it wasn't just in the recording at Nelcote. It was even in L.A. They settled in the Sunset Sound Studios that December to polish up the ragged Nelcote tracks with fresh vocals and a host of overdubs from first-rate Hollywood session players like Billy Preston and Dr. John. It was here that Keith's reign as the chaotic commander of the Exile on Main Street sessions came to an end as Jagger reclaimed his usual role as first stone and shepherd of the songs through to completion. Partially, this was because Mick was better suited to the business of refining. With his organizational skills and analytical mind honed by a blizzard of white powder. But also, Keith's heroin addiction continued to worsen. And by the time final mixes were being assembled in March 1972, he'd flown to a drug treatment center in Switzerland. This was for the best, both for obvious reasons, and also because the album might never have been finished otherwise. Mick and Keith's mixing process went something like this. The pair chose a song they liked, then chose the take they liked, and then they each did a mix. Then they'd fight over which one was the best, with producer Jimmy Miller and engineer Andy Johns acting as referees. These fights could be brutal, sometimes lasting for days or even weeks. Then, when the dust settled, repeat the process. Exile on Main Street is an album made under the influence of heroin and mixed under the influence of cocaine. They mixed for months. That's when they would go nuts. I mean, that's when Keith and Mick, another part of their genius, I mean, the way these guys could hear, listening to something they had heard 10 million times and still not satisfied, the level of depth perception orally, wanting it to be perfect. Nobody gets this about them, you know, uh, the level of craft that they had. In some cases, they would cull through 15 or even 25 hours of material just for one song, as Mick and Keith tried in vain to determine which was the perfect performance. Once, as the deadline loomed, they stayed awake for some 31 hours straight to remix everything from scratch. For Charlie Watts, the effort was worth the results. Here he is talking to Robert Greenfield in 1973, courtesy of the Northwestern University Archives. Making records is real work. It's not much joy. It's work. Oh, it's great joy because, uh, you know, you can hear it back and it's like perfection. But Bill Wyman was painfully aware of the economic costs as well as the psychic ones. But we have such enormous overheads on making records because we spend so much time and trouble. And every single note, if there's one note wrong, we won't do it. And they could never get the mix right on Tumbling Dice. They kept remixing it. I was in the studio with them and, you know, and the famous mixing wants the snares to crack. You know, it just sounds like dust spins, lids, dust spin lids, you know. Like, dude, the, the Yiddish expression is good Enough already, man. One day, they found themselves at an impasse over which song to pick as a single. Mick thought all down the line had chart potential, but engineer Andy Johns disagreed. He just couldn't hear it on the radio. Well, do you want to hear it on the radio? Mick asked. As was so often the case, the Stones knew a guy. So they piled into their limos and took off down the Sunset Strip. They took it to a radio station so they could sit outside in the limo. And they think this is the point. They wanted to know how it would sound on a car radio. 
I don't know who came up there. I think Mick or Keith. The guy would have been honored to play the mix. A consensus still hadn't been reached by the time the song was over. So they called up the station and had them play it again. Not just any band can listen to playbacks on the radio. The Stones' arrival in town had LA station managers falling all over themselves to curry favor. Doing the band a solid by broadcasting an unreleased track seemed like a win-win for everyone. Here's the way it worked back then. KMET and KLOS. You had two hip, not underground, progressive, playing albums, playing the Stones. The Stones are in L.A., and we're competing with another station. We're going to play more Stones than they do. Believe me, they were sensitive. They listened to the radio. The Stones needed the radio arguably more than the radio needed the Stones. For PR Supremo Gary Stromberg, it was a crucial tool in breaking new songs. FM stations had just come into popularity in the late 60s in in terms of the ability to promote careers. And the way (laughs) that was part of the the business that I had was that it was record promotion and the way you could get uh, albums played because they were... The AM stations were only playing three-minute singles. The way you promoted albums was you could go to these FM stations and you could bring the whoever was the disc jockey at the time, whatever drug that is, his preference, and you could take over. I mean, I would literally sit with disc jockeys on KMET and KLOS. I won't name names, but if you walked out there with a good enough amount of cocaine, they would just let you play whatever you want. And there was no time limits. You know, you could play a whole album if you kept providing drugs. So I've launched a lot of artists' careers on FM radio, thanks to my good quality cocaine. (laughs) But at the moment, the Stones didn't have an album to promote. Six weeks before the American tour was due to kick off, Exile on Main Street was still incomplete. Mick and Keith remained mired in the mixing, listening to endless versions of the songs they'd heard literally a thousand times. With the deadline way in the rearview mirror and Atlantic Records chief Ahmet Erdogan breathing down his neck, Rolling Stone Records president Marshall Chess was about to have a coronary. His father Leonard had co-founded Chess Records, the legendary Chicago R&B label where the likes of Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley cut three sides in three hours. These guys were taking weeks just to mix one song. It just didn't compute. I mean, they were late. This this is like, dude, the tour started mid-June. This is like second week in May. The album's not pressed yet. They wouldn't let go. Okay. So now we're sitting in this living room. Andy Johns, Keith, Mick, Bob, Marshall. They play it. It's like, I heard it and it sounds the same to me. I can't, I don't have those kind of ears and after it's the same deal, like Mick says, yeah, if you just, so here's what we need to do. And he gives Andy like a shopping list, you know, like just turn this down. And you know that track we want. And Marshall says something like lunatics. He just says it kind of to him. It's like he has no control over them. He's under pressure like crazy from Ahmet. Ahmet went to Marshall's bar mitzvah. Marshall's known Ahmet his whole life. Ahmet's losing his mind in New York. Atlantic's whole, you know, this is it. It's a big release. And this was on a Saturday. And Marshall, listen to this old school, flew to New York on Monday with the Masters, with the final track. 
and they must have gone crazy into production because the album was out, you know, once the tour began. Uh, and maybe maybe it was earlier in May, but it was way beyond any kind of sane deadline. Released in early May 1972, Exile on Main Street was certified gold in the U.S. within two days of hitting shelves and quickly reached the top spot on charts all over the world. This was typical to the point of tedious as far as the Stones were concerned. However, the bewilderment that greeted the album was something new. Instead of melody, Exile on Main Street deals in mood, and the mood's decidedly bad. Weariness seemed etched into the grooves as the band grappled with their literal and metaphysical exile. For fans who'd looked to the Stones to provide a soundtrack to their lives for the better part of a decade, it was difficult to relate. These people hadn't spent a summer living in the south of France as a tax dodge. Heroin hadn't yet become shockingly prevalent on the streets. And with Watergate still a few months on the horizon, generational malaise hadn't yet gone mainstream. The songs spread across the sprawling double disc were dispatches from the abyss, about as welcoming as a long path leading into a dark forest at dusk. In short, it doesn't exactly grab you off the bat. Instead, it demands to be taken as a total experience rather than a series of songs. Perhaps because of this, the lead single, Tumbling Dice, underperformed on the hit parade, despite their fastidious radio testing. Today, Exile on Main Street's place in the pantheon of rock classics is well assured. But back in 1972, no one seemed sure if it was a masterpiece or a mess. I recently had a conversation where I was informed that it was more critically praised than I thought. But I found, my recollection is people were confused by it as an album. The album may have sold, but it wasn't the masterpiece that it has since become. I have witnessed this incredible phenomenon that later generations chose to embrace this as the Stones' greatest album. I would say at the time, no one perceived it that way. It's Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers... But, you know, this is what time does. It's really interesting. It's seen their, uh, through a different filter. No one considered it their masterpiece when it appeared. There were respect. Lenny Kay, lead guitarist for Patti Smith, and former record counter clerk in Greenwich Village, okay? He reviewed it for Rolling Stone because Lenny was a rock critic, among all the other things he did, and he gave it a respectful review, but it confused people. Lenny's review of what he calls the Rolling Stones at their most dense and impenetrable opens with a somewhat tepid endorsement. There are songs that are better, there are songs that are worse, there are songs that'll become your favorites, and others you'll probably lift the needle for when their time is due. While allowing that there's some, quote, fine music on the four sides, he declared that the great Stones album of their mature period is probably yet to come. The British publication Melody Maker, on the other hand, proclaimed it the Stones' best album to date, and a reviewer for the Record Mirror echoed the sentiment, writing that the Stones have, quote, reached a definite peak and favorably framed Exiles a sort of evil inverse of the Beatles' White Album in terms of stylistic scope. And the New York Times, who could scarcely be bothered to review a rock record less than a decade before, had perhaps the most intriguing comment. Exile on Main Street has enough rock music of all shades and styles to make anyone happy, wrote Don Heckman. The Stones are looking inward now. And if they help you understand something about yourself, that just might be the most revolutionary act of all. But a better review came from a much harsher critic, Stones' roadie Ian Stewart, who was never one for idle praise. This is 
a bit overdone, I think, but at the same time, I quite like it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Nearly a year after the notorious recording sessions in the sweltering basement of Keith Richards' villa in the French Riviera, the Rolling Stones spent the spring of 1972 in Los Angeles, making final preparations for their North American tour. For them, it was a long time coming. Given the many privileges of being a Rolling Stone, playing live was easily their favorite. It was their lifeblood. According to Robert Greenfield, it was what they were born to do. A Marshall Chess once said to me, so Marshall, why are they still doing this? He said, the only time they feel alive is when they're on stage. You gotta like that. As far as Keith Richards was concerned, playing live was the whole point. Without the road, I wouldn't enjoy it. In like, I, I mean, I, I enjoy record. I enjoy recording, but to be in the studio isn't the end of it for me. You know, I, I, I dig to do it for a, for a while, but 
I wouldn't have any reason to go in the studio if I didn't go on the road. You know, I wouldn't feel any necessity to, to go in the studio if I hadn't been on the road. If the band stopped working, then you might not be in the studio. I don't think any of, any of us could. They definitely can't. They become the world's worst rock and roll band if they don't go on the road. They really They're the last connection, you know? I mean, they started playing in 63, Stu driving them in a Volkswagen bus, I think, and they'd play church halls, and they'd go from one village to another, and that's why they're different from the Beatles. They began on the road, and they've spent their lives and career on the road, kind of like Dylan. He doesn't want to stay home. He wants to play. And so this is what they do, and they're still doing it, but no one else is. That's the point. Their upcoming kickoff in Vancouver would be the culmination of months of round-the-clock work from a small army of creative and technical experts, all hell-bent on making this the most awe-inspiring musical event of the year, if not the decade. The chief architect of the tour was one Edward Herbert Beresford Monk, known as Chip to his friends. Chipmunk, get it? The groan-worthy nickname belies his brilliance for assembling stages and theatrical environments. After cutting his teeth in Greenwich Village folk clubs, where Bob Dylan wrote the lyrics to A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall on his IBM's Galactic Typewriter, he worked his way through Harlem's Apollo Theater, the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals, and 1967's Monterey Pop Festival, which launched the careers of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and The Who. Chip's own career went sky-high thanks to his involvement in Woodstock. In addition to building the stage and assembling the lighting, he was drafted at the 11th hour to serve as the de facto MC of the event, introducing the acts and occasionally warning people to lay off the brown acid going around. By the dawn of the 70s, his grand theatrical visions had earned him a reputation as the Albert Spear of rock. The Stones naturally wanted the best when it came to assembling their stage. Chip Monk was the obvious choice. We can't talk about this tour without Chip Monk. <coughs> Edward Herbert Beresford Monk. Monk. The third? The third. Chip Monk. Chip was a technical and practical genius. genius. Yeah. There was nothing he could not do with his hands. Yeah. I mean, he... he He's uh, a mad scientist. Uh, yeah. Chip is thinking on a level that ordinary humans don't get to. So Chip... This is like the fantasy of his life, actually. He has been given unbridled license to spend as much money. On the staging of the show. On the physical stage the physical of the show. Physical staging of the show. Chip pulled out all the stops for the Stones. To ensure good sounds, even for those in the cheap seats, he commissioned 10,000-pound hydraulic lifts for either side of the stage, which hoisted gargantuan speaker cabinets some 18 feet to spread the music evenly across the arena. Above this, straddling the stage, was a 40-foot-long metal lighting bridge sporting 50 lamps with a whole rainbow of multicolored gels, all controlled with enough cables to fill 10 supermarket carts. But Chip's crowning achievement was the 16-by-40-foot mirror suspended over the stage, which bounced light from six 1,500-watt spotlights flanking the stones from the sides and behind. The effect simultaneously backlit and frontlit the band in pale light, casting them in hyper-real, dreamlike sharpness. Chip was certain that this innovative approach would be the future of rock concerts, but not so much. 
Many were worried that the fragile mirror would shatter at some point during the 15,000-mile journey, ensuring a $7,000 loss and possibly seven years of bad luck. Thankfully, it survived, but proved so unwieldy that such an effect was barely used again. And then there was the stage itself, the surface on which Michael Philip Jagger and co. cavorted and contorted themselves nightly was comprised of six massive plywood pieces. These were struck after each gig and trucked from city to city in two huge vans. When assembled, the flooring depicted a pair of two fire-breathing sea serpents entwined on a sea of white. Because why not? The stage is, I'm sure, to that point in time, the largest stage. In other words, they're not going to play on the stage of the arena. We bring in our own stage. They assemble the stage with individual sections that were immense, and they formed a dragon. And you couldn't really see it. I mean, it was flat. Nobody in the house could see it unless you're in the balcony. The upper, nobody in the good seats could see the stage. Cost a fortune. While Chip Monk attended to the nuts and bolts matters of rock tours, Gary Stromberg concerned himself with building something less tangible but equally crucial, Buzz. As a co-founder of Gibson and Stromberg, one of LA's most prominent PR firms, he'd represented some of rock's biggest names, including Elton John, The Doors, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Three Dog Night. As such, Gary and his partner Bob Gibson came just as recommended as Chip Monk. We just were a very lucky little company that grew significantly in the late 60s and early 70s. And we were representing pretty much the who's who of rock and roll at that time. Almost everybody from England that was of note other than the Beatles from Pink Floyd on down. And we were sailing along. Our company was really doing good. The Gibson and Stromberg office on the Sunset Strip was a hub for musical hopefuls just dying to one day find their faces plastered on the oversized posters outside the Tower Records shop just across the street. Kids swarmed their front door, and their phone lines were regularly clogged with calls dubiously claiming to be from John Lennon or some other member of the rock elite. Once, a guy in a full wetsuit, flippers, weighted belt, rubber feet, and goggles walked into the front door and asked if they knew of any bands looking for underwater drummers. Not this week, came the reply. Desperate or drug-induced, either way, Gary had no time for such shenanigans. He was busy strategizing for the STP tour. His challenge was to not only sustain the public's interest over a two-month period, but make it build and build with each passing tour date until culminating in a full-blown frenzy during the Stones' final four shows in New York City at the end of July. The only way to achieve this was a full-on media blitz. This meant features or cover stories in all the major magazines. Rather than favoring the usual rock mags, priority was given to mainstream publications like Life, Time, Newsweek, and Esquire, outlets who'd previously ignored bands like the Stones other than the occasional snide remark about the length of their hair. Their coverage told the world that the Stones tour wasn't just music news, but a bona fide cultural moment. Needless to say, this was a plum assignment, and the jockeying among writers was brutal. Big names are floated and bid on like a livestock auction, and then unceremoniously dropped by magazine editors. The Saturday Review considers sending beat scribe William S. Burroughs, but then the writer of Naked Lunch is subbed out for fellow iconoclast Terry Southern, author of the scandalous comic novels Candy and the Magic Christian, 
both of which had been recently made into films featuring Ringo Starr. Truman Capote's name is being tossed around by Rolling Stone magazine. The fact that he's openly contemptuous of rock and roll is of little concern. Truman is atmosphere, theater, and perhaps most importantly, prestige. Heck, even Teddy Kennedy's name was joked about within the halls of Gibson and Stromberg. The more ludicrous the idea, the better. Probably more writers on that tour oh, yeah. than in the history of rock and roll. Name writers, big, extraordinary you know, journalists. To try to understand the power of the Rolling Stones, yeah. you just have to look at Capote and, and Terry Southern and Warhol and Hefner, all these people that wanted to just be close, to, to be in the, the reflected glory of these guys was just insane. Even guitarist Mick Taylor recognized that some unusual folks were hopping on the bandwagon, metaphorically and literally. Yeah, it was like it was a bit like Radical Chic, really. I mean, on the 69 tour, you wouldn't have had Truman Capote on the plane and um, Terry Southern you know, writing journalistic documentaries on our tour. So obviously things have changed a lot. We were front-page news in every city. The story was Rolling Stones in Detroit. Well, it was part of the plan. We were trying to do that, but it, it just gained its own momentum. It took on a life of its own from a media standpoint. Cover of Life magazine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And the acknowledgement was subtly, subtext, these are great artists. These are important people. Mick Jagger is a figure of significance. John F. Kennedy was on the cover of Life magazine. You get my point? That's the level. Going on tour with the Stones was no ordinary assignment. Lobbing a list of thoughtful questions at Mick and Keith just wasn't going to cut it. Instead, it was more like being embedded on a political campaign. Or in a war zone. The ability to hang was paramount. And as such, Robert Greenfield seemed like a no-brainer to include. He was a veteran of the Stones' English tour the previous year and had spent several weeks living with Keith Richards in the French Riviera while profiling him for Rolling Stone magazine, which in less than five years had gone from being a San Francisco startup to the international rock and roll Bible. Greenfield's entree to the Stones camp is both a testament to his talent and also the tight-knit music community of the era. I mean, the way I came to them, I was in London working for Rolling Stone magazine. My editor was Andrew Bailey, who's a great friend of mine until this day. The music business was so small in London then. You could have lunch with anybody and change your life, I swear. And Andrew set all this up. We had lunch with Georgia Joe Bergman, as she was called then. And Andrew and I were like, he was the music business guy and I was the hippie. And so that worked for Rolling Stone in London at that point. We covered the waterfront together. And I said to her, and this is shocking in retrospect, you know, man, I just want to hang out on the tour. And that's what I did. I mean, no one ever saw me take notes. And she was up for it. I mean, I didn't understand that they were using Rolling Stone to sell themselves. And the, I just it was all an adventure, and I wanted to write about them. And uh, on that tour, we took public trains, and it was just another world. Greenfield bonded with Keith through breaking and entering. You know, the usual way. Anita and young baby Marlon, and they're late for, they don't travel with the rest of us, and neither did Mick, but Keith was always late, but got there, and 
they were in another world and there was no talking to him. He just didn't, you knew you could not say, hey, how you doing? It was not happening, you know? And so we get to this awful dis disco. It was a disco, man. And it was called the Big Apple, another bad name, in Brighton, England, which is, you know, incongruous to say the least. And um, we arrive there and we're, it's, for, it's, uh, it's as cold as it could only have been in England in March before central heating. I mean, it just was wet and dank and cold. And we get in there. It's on the ground floor. The basement is where the, dre the dressing rooms are locked. Okay. Well, Rolling Stones, time waits for no one. They're not going to stand in the corridor. And Keith starts to riff about Marlon. My baby's cold. He's coughing. And like in two seconds, like, this poor kid is going to get pneumonia. Keith just keeps building this melodrama. Everybody else probably would have stood there. Not Keith is like, this is ta he's taking this personally. Okay. Next thing I know, as always, minding my own business, just standing there, Keith is at the door, and I don't know if it was the famous knife that he always carried under his outfit. You know, the I don't know if it was a scimitar of this knife. He's famous for this. And he's doing his best to unscrew the latch, the top. Well, I don't know. This is coming from Brooklyn or just, you know, I never was a juvenile delinquent. But next thing I know, I think I probably have a Swiss Army knife because I was a hippie. You had to have one. And I'm working on the other latch. And we are un and we're doing good. We're not talking. He didn't even look at me. It's like... I think he still thinks I'm a roadie. My job is to help him take the door off, okay? So Keith gets his latch off, you know, and the door's starting to go sideways, and, and I get my latch off, and the two of us pick up the door and throw it. It's a heavy English wooden door. We throw, okay, everybody, nobody says a word. All the, you know, Stone's women are there, Astrid, and, you know, Bianca's watching, and Anita, you know, nobody says, hey, hey, you know what? This might not be a great idea, you know. So we t we've thrown the door in the corridor, and now we're inside the dressing room. And about 10 minutes later, here comes the quote-unquote promoter. Like, dude, you already have, have muddied your name forever. His assistant comes running through the door with a ring of keys in her hand. And she looks around, and the door is in the corner, and nobody makes eye contact. It's like, yeah, and everybody's talking to each other all of a sudden. Yes, what do you think? Was that you yeah. And she just turned around and left, and there, there, was no, there were no consequences. His method for bonding with Mick took a much different form. Less to do with petty crime and more to do with emotional abuse. The thing I'll say about Mick and everybody who really ever encountered him has gone through this it was totally civil all through the tour until the Roundhouse, which was the final gig. Two shows. And between the shows, came over to me and said, uh, you have no idea what's going on on this tour, do you, man? I said, what do you mean? He said, you've been stoned as all of it. You have no... And he just slagged me off, you know? Well, again, I keep quoting my age at that, at that point. Uh... I'm 24, you know, and I didn't say anything, you know. I said, like, what am I going to do, argue with Mick Jagger between shows at the end of the tour? And then I wrote this article, Goodbye Great Britain. They were, you know, they were leaving to go into tax exile. And the story came out, and 
the first time I ever had anything in the back of the magazine, a feature. And it was, you know, people responded because I had access. I was with them. They flew public, they flew British Air to come back from Glasgow. And Keith refused to let his dog be taken off the plane. I mean, they just, the drama was constant. It's just that he generated the drama. And so by having written that article, you know, I kind of established that I could be trusted, I guess, and that I could write, I think. And then I was at the Cannes Film Festival and I got word from Andrew that Marshall Chess had arranged for me to do the Rolling Stone interview with Keith Richards. That was a big deal back then. Whoa, cover of the Rolling Stone, you know? And so that led to my living there for a couple of weeks. And actually the the next time I had seen Mick after the slagging off, and there was no conversation about it, I had passed the test. You had to stand up to him for him to want you to be part of the Stones' touring party. It's interesting, right? It's a very un-English kind of attitude, but he was so brilliant. He was a brilliant manipulator. He just could get what he wanted from anybody. At first blush, this approach seems to border on sociopathic, a tactic not terribly dissimilar to cult leaders who grind their followers down as a twisted way to test their loyalty. But the Stones were vulnerable. They learned this the hard way throughout the 60s when constant persecution by the press and police nearly sent them to prison. As the poet laureate Keith Richards once said, I never had a problem with drugs. I had a problem with cops. In order to protect themselves on tour, trust in their handlers was absolutely vital. So you know what's also interesting about them? They were so accustomed to being taken care of in a way different from the Beatles. See, the Beatles were separate early, living separately. They had always been taken care of. Here's the point. By 1972, they had literally been on the road since 1964, maybe 63. So this was... They were happy to have, they knew who was taking care of them. There was an inner circle, there's no doubt about it. That's another part of their genius. They knew how to insulate themselves. They knew who to trust. And once you were of no use to them anymore, they- Yeah, they were pros. It was also necessary to guard against their less savory habits, namely drugs. In order to know what they were doing, you had to be in the room using with them. And that's the way it always was. They had lived on the road for so long, and this is part of their persona, that even in the public eye, even on a public tour, they knew how to protect themselves and keep things secret on the tour, which is such a small, insidious village. Yeah, they were geniuses, the Mick and Keith both. This became clear to Gary from his first meeting with Mick when he received his brief as the Stones' new PR manager. We met at the, uh, the, the house, the Marion Davies house, and a very clear image of what that was like. I, I walked into this place, and I was uh, told to that the dining room was where we would meet. And this dining room had this long table that probably held 20 people on, at the table. And I sat down at the head of the table, and after a few minutes, uh, in walked Jagger, and he sat didn't come close to where I was. He went to the other <laughs> head of the table, which I think was a, totally a power move. And he sat at the head of the table uh, 20 feet away from me, or maybe more than that. And we had this conversation, and he was very, very reserved. Uh, it, just, it, it just surprised me of how 
calculated he seemed to be. He knew exactly what he wanted. Most of all, he was concerned about protecting him and his image. Would I be good at doing protecting him and his image? Not that I needed to protect anything. He was well in control of that, but to protect it, to not let harm come to them in the media. In other words, you don't have to create anything. It's going to be there, but just don't fuck it up. Don't make any mistakes. Yeah, I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be fun. Indispensable though he became, Gary actually missed the first few dates of the STP tour. My partner and I, our initials are GNS, our company, we were known as Guzzle and Snort. <laughs> Gibson was a drinker and I was a drug user. And, and so Gibson was going to cover the first part of the tour and I was going to cover the second. We'd, done, we'd bite it up. So my job was when the tour opened was to do the planning, to hi, you know find the right writers and to lay out the the plan for the tour while he was going to go up and cover the first date. And after that first Vancouver date, he called me and said, I can't do this. There's just everybody's high. They're all getting using drugs and stuff. He said, you're much better suited than this to me. So he came back home and I went up to, I think it was San Francisco is where I first joined it. So I missed the opening of the tour. Music and drugs were inextricably linked in the early 70s. It's an uncomfortable fact, but it would be dishonest to suggest otherwise. Drugs simply were the currency of the community, almost on par with songs. For Gary Stromberg, they played a not insignificant role in making his reputation. Let me start by saying that, that unlike any other business that I know of, it was kind of a, a, a badge of honor to be a drug addict in my time. You know, and I think my business was largely built on, on uh, my reputation as a drug addict and a guy who could hang with my artists. I should describe what my office looked like. It was set up like a living room. Um, there was a big sign over the front door that said Mental Ward. <laughs> and and uh, it, there were no desks. There were only couches and a big coffee table. It was like a big living room. And on the coffee table in the center of the room was a, a crystal bowl, um, like a fruit bowl. You know, they would hold fruit, only it was filled with cocaine. And the rules in my office were if you came to do business with me and my company, you could help yourself. You could take as much as you wanted, but there was no to-go orders. You couldn't leave with anything. <laughs> and my office became, as you could imagine, very popular because people could hang out there and get high, but they couldn't leave with anything. So as a consequence, it, it led to a lot of business for me. It was the rate of exchange in the world of rock and roll in that era was drugs. It was just simply put, drugs. Discussing the substance abuse of the era is a tricky thing because it doesn't translate into 21st century sensibilities. Viewed from the vantage point of half a century, it's easy to dismiss such wanton self-destruction as remarkably irresponsible or hopelessly naive. According to Gary, now 40 years sober and the rock star in the recovery community, it was simply a product of the time, a toxic blend of ignorance and innocence. We were rebelling in my generation, and drugs were a part of the, you know, stick it in the, in the man's face. The idea was that, they, you know, the government was lying to you. Drugs weren't dangerous. They were fun. <laughs> so there's an expression in my recovery program, you know, that it starts off as fun, and then it's fun with problems, and then it's just problems. And that's what happened for me. It just became real problematic in my life. It is really the context of the times, and it's also ignorance. People didn't know. What the consequence? Oh, of course, there were no consequences. 
When you're 26, you don't know what you're going to look like when you're 62, okay? And they were lying to us about everything. And it was another age. There was, uh, I'll say this over and over. Hey, there was no internet. You couldn't look it up, man. It wasn't on Wikipedia. What are the effects of heroin? That's not find outable unless you were shooting up, okay? The first and, exposure I had to drugs was a movie called Reefer Madness. Yes. <laughs> it told you would go insane and murder people <laughs> if you smoked pot. You could say this attitude towards substances extended to the STP tour. Hedonism was very much in fashion. And to borrow a phrase from Keith, being restrained was a no-no. I mean, the astonishing thing, and we haven't discussed this yet, and Gary could talk about it, we could talk about it, was the amazing level of drug use on the 1972 tour. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's your only comment? Yes. Well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, there was an astonishing amount. I mean, we had our own doctor there who, who was maintaining these guys and enabling. He was an enabler. It was the first time in my career that 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 getting high was is more important than the work that I had to do in that tour. I was just staying high because they were, and I just fancied myself being one of them, yeah. which was really not the reason I was there. I was there to do the PR stuff, which I was able to do and still get as high as I wanted to be. So just to be able to hang with guys who could consume like I was consuming was very appealing to me. And I really, I loved Keith because of that. I mean, he just, there was no boundaries. There was no limits. He would go until he, you know, there was no more left or he was, you know, unconscious. What do you think fueled that? Did you just love it? Or Oh, yeah. Just loved it. Being out of control, I mean, that's part of the, the who he was. He was the ball in a pinball machine. He would just be knocked from flipper to flipper. So Gary Stromberg, who I've known for 50 years, said to me once, Bob, Keith has the greatest move to a Coke spoon I've ever seen. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Bob, he can walk through a crowded, because he always had that a gold snorter. No, spoon. A spoon, he, a silver spoon. Yes. Hanging from a chain on his neck. So he could walk across a crowded room. Well, people would hold it up sometimes. He said, take a hit, keep moving, and not spill a drop. <laughs> people would throw stuff on the stage, oh, and, no. and Keith would consume <laughs> pills and stuff that were in vials without ever asking any questions. Mm -hmm. He would just do it. The guy could live spontaneously yes, yes. and just roll with whatever you threw, like pick up on something on stage and take it and just see where it took you. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I'd ever seen anybody that was willing to, to risk it on that level. Suffice it to say, Mick and Keith had very different views on drug use during the 1972 tour. This added to the growing schism between the two. Keith espoused excess. But the only way to do a tour like that is to be as high as you can be and not think about anything else except that. Just play. It's all you can think, you know what I mean? Well, Mick preached moderation, at least publicly. Yeah, you know, I think that's completely wrong. I mean, I disagree fundamentally. But I think the thing is to be as straight as possible. Really? Absolutely. I think to get to get as high as possible and play is completely wrong. For me, I'm not saying I stay completely straight no. all throughout the tour, but I did make certain. When I say straight, I mean not fucked up in my head. I'm not saying that I was. That, I mean, I wouldn't take a beer, you know, or I wouldn't, you know, get dr a bit drunk some nights, you know, a little bit, you know. But I never went on the stage so. I never went on the stage loaded once, which means fucked up. Fucked up, yeah, right. Out of control. Out of control. Impossible. How could I go out of control?
tour couldn't have happened if it wasn't for the, the chemicals that supported them. I mean, that in large part was responsible for the overall group energy that took place in a tour like that. I don't think it exists if there wasn't pharmaceutical intervention of some sort. I mean, Gary's got a great point about the chemicals may have helped enable it, but if you snort blow, you don't become Mick Jagger, you know? Like, he, he had the energy of an insane person. It became clear after days or even just hours of hanging around with the Stones that they were made of stronger stuff. It's a shame that Darwin never had a chance to meet Keith Richards. One of the things that I was very impressed with was their physical prowess, how strong these guys were, that they were able to endure what they, the, the, especially Keith, what he subjected his body to, and yet was always, like Bob said, he was always, he never missed a show and how strong they were. And one night we were on the plane, the private plane, and, and Mick and Keith were both standing in the aisle talking to somebody. And you know where the, the, uh, the luggage racks are above the thing? Both of them were holding on to the luggage rack and they were like hanging like they were just <laughs> by one arm and they were hanging there and the doctor who was accompanying us on the tour he's talking and and I'm pointing out that look at look at the way they're they're thinking he says you know what that is and I said no he said they are simians they <laughs> He said, you know, there are basic uh, body types, and one of the types is a, a simian—I forgot what he called it, but it's a long torso, no ass, long arms, and he said they, they're like the apes. That's brilliant. And, and he said, and they are the strongest of the human species, are these, these body types. And uh, he was absolutely right on. And if you'll notice, a lot of the English rock stars have that same kind of body type. Rod Stewart. His point was that these are very simian-like animals. And <laughs> right that they are capable of enduring a lot more than their normal human is. Bob has a similar story of witnessing Keith's superhuman consumption habits while on the road. So we're in Denver. The party goes on till 3 a.m. Because it's after the show. Party doesn't start till midnight, 3 a.m., whatever. And as I said, your only responsibility in the morning was to bring your <laughs> luggage to the lobby. So I'm down early. I don't know why. I drop off the luggage. And I don't know what behooved me. I stick my head in the bar. It's 11 a.m. Two guys in the bar, Keith and Bobby Keys. Now, I know how loaded everybody was the night before. I come in. They're sitting at the bar at 11 o'clock, and I said, the fuck are you doing here? Keith is drinking that was invented on the tour in Sausalito at the Trident, drinking a tequila, tequila sunrise. sunrise. And Keith holds up the glass because the grenadine rises, you know. It's orange juice and tequila and grenadine on ice for those who haven't had one. And very nice. And nice. very pretty. Very beautiful. Layered, yes. Very visual. Keith holds up the glass and says, Vitamin C, man. <laughs> like, oh, you're doing something good. For <laughs> this is your breakfast. And then they got on a plane. And I never saw Keith sleep on a plane. I never saw Keith sleep. He also, and I have to say this, and Keith never missed a show in his entire career. For mere mortals, to compete with the band's intake was a fool's errand. It's been a moment of insight for me for Gary to say that, you know, he became a Rolling Stone on the tour. See, that was Gary's first time around, first hit. But living at Nelcut, I really saw that if you got too close, you caught fire. 
you could not be Keith. You could not be mad. So I never, I'm alive today and talking because I never tried to be one of the boys or girls or boys and girls. I was always working. For those seduced by the romantic visions of sex, drugs, and rock and roll while flying high with the world's greatest group, consider the story of Danny Seymour, a 28-year-old cinematographer and sound man who served as part of the documentary crew accompanying the STP tour. Danny was a lovely guy. Danny bought himself a 38-foot boat and went off sailing, I believe, to kick, to get clean. They found the boat. They never found Danny. Nobody knows. I mean, the repercussions of this tour, the level of damage that people did to themselves. Yeah, it took a long time for me to personally recover from the amount of drugs that I had taken on that tour. And I think that was pretty much the case for a lot of those guys. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, 
the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the album was done and plans were well underway for the biggest rock tour the world had ever seen. There was, however, one small problem. Keith Richards was in no shape to do much of anything, much less sweat his way through two hours of rock and roll each night for six weeks. He was, to use the most evolved phrase of the time, not doing well. With fixes administered every three to four hours, his heroin habit was costing him $100 daily, or about $725 today. The band's ability to generate vast amounts of money by touring the world was contingent on Keith's health. They can't start without him, and a drug bust would jeopardize the tour, leaving them even deeper in the hole. So he and Anita are both sent to a detox clinic in Switzerland. Expectations were not high. The Stone's lawyer advises Keith that this might be a good time to work out his will. He's 29 years old. Rehab as we know it today didn't exist. The only real intervention was death. Keith and Anita arrive in Switzerland that spring with so much luggage that arrangements must be made for a truck to deliver it to their hotel. It's decided that the couple will take turns detoxing, with Keith going first while Anita, heavily pregnant and weeks away from giving birth, will look after their two-year-old son, Marlon. As Keith's withdrawal symptoms begin to kick in, he becomes nauseated and limp, his skin turning cold and a sickly shade of green. He's in no shape to make it down the stairs, much less get into a car for a lengthy ride to the clinic. An ambulance is quickly summoned. Anita asks the drivers to be discreet. She doesn't want Marlon to see his corpse-like daddy being carried out on a stretcher in panic. So the attendants put Keith on a chair and drape a blanket over him, and carry him down the stairs like a sultan through some imperial palace. It's probably for the best that Keith is barely conscious, his head lulling from side to side. Against all odds, Keith has somehow made it from his house in Los Angeles to a clinic in Vevey, Switzerland. Somehow, he's managed to survive yet another serious bout of heroin use. This one began at Nelcut, but became far worse in L.A. Someone made of lesser stuff might have fallen by the wayside. Not Keith. The good news is that Keith Richards is still alive. The bad news is, when he wakes up tomorrow morning, his detox will begin. At the clinic... Keith finds himself playing the Jack Nicholson role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a wounded rebel in confinement. Against doctor's orders, he lights a cigarette in his room, but his fingers are shaky and he immediately drops it on the bed. He beats out the flames with his bare hands. After this, he walks out into the hallway to smoke like everyone else. One day, he finds himself seated next to a catatonic patient. He sticks a cigarette in the frozen man's mouth and lights it, Joking to an assistant, that guy goes through two packs a day. Though his sense of humor is returned, he's still weak. He once falls asleep in the middle of signing traveler's checks. In a touching display of interband loyalty, Stone's bassist Bill Wyman calls to offer support in any way he can. Though deeply appreciated, he's immediately talked out of flying to Switzerland for a visit, chiefly because no one at the facility has yet realized that Mr. Keith, as he's known, is actually a rock star. The sight of two stones together might tip someone off, and a media circus would surely ensue. When Keith is finally recognized, out in the hallway for a smoke, it's by a 17-year-old kid who's absolutely delighted. 
Keith, where's Mick? He asks. Uh, he's not here, man, Keith replies. I'm trying to get my act together. I'm trying to get it straight. The kid tells Keith he also plays guitar and runs to get his instrument. Soon enough, the two of them are playing together, with Keith doing his best to teach him a stone song through shaky, if not sticky, fingers. Anita's detox was more difficult due to the fact that she was heavily pregnant. A visit to an obstetrician beforehand got slightly awkward when it became clear that the doctor had no idea who he was dealing with. He took notes and asked all the usual questions. Do you drink? Do you have much coffee? Are you taking any prescription medication? Anita replied in her German-accented English, It's a little more complicated than that. You see, I'm on heroin. The doctor dropped his pen. She went into premature labor after just a day and a half of detoxification. There were great fears that the baby would be born addicted to heroin. According to most of the medical literature on the subject, these infants go through withdrawal as soon as they're separated from their mothers. They shake, twitch, fuss, and sweat. Some have problems eating. In severe cases, they even suffer seizures. The traditional form of treatment for reducing these symptoms is to administer a tincture of opium so the newborn can slowly be weaned off the drug. Through some miracle that no one can explain, on April 17, 1972, two days after Tumbling Dice is released as the first single off of Exile on Main Street, Anita Pallenberg gives birth to a baby girl who's not addicted and so does not have to suffer through the agony of neonatal abstinence syndrome. She does, however, have Anita's large dark eyes. They call her Dandelion. To Keith, she's perfect. And so, for not the first nor the last time, Keith Richards found himself on the brink of death and survived. As he's wont to do. Everyone knows the old joke. We have to start worrying about what kind of world we're going to leave for Keith Richards. He flies back to Los Angeles at the end of May to rehearse for the STP tour, due to kick off in just a matter of days. Robert Greenfield was there. So the most amazing I ever saw that band, and I guess I saw them a lot. Saw them all through England, you know, saw them a lot. Uh, before the tour began in L.A., I went to see them at SIR, and that studio instrument rentals, rentals. Right and down the street here. Right on the Sunset Strip, and there are two, in my memory, very long and narrow rehearsal studios, one on the left, one on the right. So the one on the left, Little Feet, was in, and the one on the right was the Stones. And basically, they were playing through pig nose amps. And Charlie was not, I don't think he had a drum kit. I think he was playing on a pad or something, you know? It was like seeing the Rolling Stones in a finished basement. They were so incredible. And I don't know, somehow that gets lost in the mix. Even Keith indestructible yet momentarily fragile, was bolstered by what he heard. Yeah, the band is still getting better, you know, which is, you know, an amazing thing, really, after that long of playing together, because it isn't, it's never just the length of time that you play together that makes a band good. Usually a band gets sort of fed up, you know, gets stale somewhere along that, which the Rolling did at one point, but they managed to overcome it, so, you know, when... We'd been touring for four years, 
three, four years non-stop, you know, and, you know, you can push so hard for so long that you can get absolutely pissed off with it, you know. But I think we've done just the right amount of work and the right amount of recording to keep ourselves interested in what we're doing, you know. It's also the dynamic between Mick and Keith that you see on stage. Mick and Keith working off one another with Charlie in the middle. And the dynamic of that on stage, especially in small arenas, without all the frou-frou, no scenery, no big lighting, no nothing. Whoa. You know, it's two inter... These, the, the Glimmer Twins, these two brothers who love and hate one another, that's real theater. The trials and tribulations of Nelkut would play themselves out on stage every night of the STP tour in the summer of 1975 to the joy and, yes, satisfaction of thousands of fans. This should be the happy ending. The greatest rock band in the world, happy and healthy, working through the set list for their American victory lap. But a larger problem lingered. There was a subtle hint in their list of tunes. Sympathy for the Devil was conspicuously absent. They were playing the song in Altamont when a scuffle broke out between the Hell's Angels, ostensibly acting as security on the Stones' behalf, and 19-year-old Meredith Hunter. From the stage, Mick sensed the disturbance. We always have something very funny happening when we start that number, he warily told the crowd. A few songs later, the gang stabbed Hunter to death. To play the song this time around almost felt like tempting fate with an evil incantation. Best to avoid, for the audience's sake, and the band's own. The Angels were not happy about taking the fall for the crime. Hey, they were just doing the job the Stones hired them to do. Word on the street was they wanted retribution in the form of Jagger's head. No one was sure if the Angels had really put a hit out on him, but he moved like a marked man. The fear colored the entire tour. Would Jagger be killed? The Stones insisted that the tour go on as scheduled. Jagger didn't have much of a choice. Yeah, I mean, either I stopped her or I didn't, you know. I mean, it was as simple as that. Rumors of the Hells Angels' murderous plot spread far and wide. Cruel reminders turned up when Jagger least expected, like the devil in disguise. People said, well, Mick, you know, aren't you worried? You know, once I was really got me when we decided to do the tour and we went out. And uh, we were driving and we parked in a parking lot and these four girls came up, you know, young girls, and these chicks came up and said, just heard you're going on tour, great. So then they said, aren't you afraid of being shot? So it really freaked me out, you know, there's these like 15 year old girls who say that, you know. So uh, I said, yeah, I am. Written and hosted by Jordan Runtaw. Co-executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtaw. Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder Jim. 
original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown, with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.